Chapter 3 of Historical Mysteries This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sissy Neck Historical Mysteries by Andrew Lang Chapter 3 The Campton Mystery 1. The ordinary historical mystery is, at least so far, clear that one or other of two solutions must be right, if we only knew which. Perkin Warbeck was the rightful king, or he was an impostor. Jacopo Stuardo at Naples, 1669, was the eldest son of Charles II, or he was a humbug. The man in the iron mask was certainly either Mattioli or Eustace Dauger. James VI conspired against Gowrie, or Gowrie conspired against James VI, and so on. There is reason and human nature at the back of these puzzles. But at the back of the Campton mystery there is not a glimmer of reason or of sane human nature, except on one hypothesis which I shall offer. The occurrences are to all appearance, motiveless, as the events in a feverish dream. The whole matter is dark and mysterious, which we must therefore leave unto him, who alone knoweth all things, in his due time, to reveal and to bring to light. So says the author of A True and Perfect Account of the Examination, Confession, Trial, and Execution of Joan Perry, and her two sons John and Richard Perry, for the supposed murder of Will Harrison, gentlemen, being one of the most remarkable occurrences which hath happened in the memory of man, sent in a letter by Sir Thomas Overbury of Burton in the county of Gloucester, Kent, and one of His Majesty's Justices of the Peace, to Thomas Shirley, Doctor of Physic in London, also Mr. Harrison's own account, etc., London, printed for John Atkinson, near the chapter house in St. Paul's Churchyard. No date, but apparently of 1676. Such is the vast and breathless title of a pamphlet which, by undeserved good luck, I have just purchased. The writer, Sir Thomas Overbury, the nephew and heir, says Mr. John Paget, of the unhappy victim of the infamous Countess of Somerset, who had the elder Overbury poisoned in the tower, was the justice of the peace who acted as judge d'instruction in the case of Harrison's disappearance. 5. Footnote 5, Paget Paradoxes and Puzzles, page 342, Blackwoods, 1874. To come to the story. In 1660, William Harrison, gentleman, was steward or factor to the Viscountess Campton in the Chipping Campton, Gloucestershire a single-streeted town among the Cotswold Hills. The lady did not live in Campton House, whose owner burned it in the Great Rebellion, to spite the rebels, as Castle Terram was burned by its Jacobite lord in the fifteen. Harrison inhabited a portion of the building which had escaped destruction. He had been for fifty years a servant of the Hickesses and Camptons. His age was seventy, which deepens the mystery. He was married and had offspring, including Edward, his eldest son. On a market day in 1659, Mr. Harrison's house was broken into at high noon, while he and his whole family 
or at the lecture in church, a Puritan form of edification. A ladder had been placed against the wall, the bars of a window on the second story had been wrenched away with a plowshare, which was left in the room, and 140 pounds of Lady Campton's money were stolen. The robber was never discovered, a curious fact in a small and lonely village. The times, however, were disturbed, and a wandering cavalier or roundhead soldier may have cracked the crib. Not many weeks later, Harrison's servant Perry was heard crying for help in the garden. He showed a sheep pick with a hacked handle, and declared that he had been set upon by two men in white with naked swords, and had defended himself with his rustic tool. It is curious that Mr. John Paget, a writer of great acuteness and for many years police magistrate, a hammersmith, says nothing of the robbery of 1659 and of Perry's crazy conduct in the garden. Perry's behavior there and his hysterical invention of the two armed men in white give the key to his character. The two men in white were never traced, of course, but later we meet three men not less flagitious and even more mysterious. They appear to have been three Men in Buckram. Footnote 6. See his Paradoxes and Puzzles, pages 337 through 370. And, for good reading, see the book Passam. At all events, in quiet Campton, adventures obviously occurred to the unadventurous. They culminated in the following year, on August 16, 1660. Harrison left his house in the morning and walked the two miles to Charingworth to collect his lady's rents. The autumn day closed in, and between eight and nine o'clock, old Mrs. Harrison sent the servant, John Perry, to meet his master on the way home. Lights were also left burning in Harrison's window. That night neither master nor man returned, and it is odd that the younger Harrison, Edward, did not seek for his father till very early next morning. He had the convenience for nocturnal search of a moon which rose late. In the morning Edward went out and met Perry, returning alone. He had not found his master. The pair walked to Ebrington, a village halfway between Campton and Charingworth, and learned that Harrison had called on the previous evening as he moved home through Ebrington at the house of one Daniel. The hour is not given, but Harrison certainly disappeared when just beyond Ebrington, within less than a mile from Campton. Edward and Perry next heard that a poor woman had picked up on the highway beyond Ebrington near some winds or furs, a hat, band, and comb, which were Harrison's. They were found within about a half mile of his own house. The band was bloody, the hat and comb were hacked and cut. Please observe the precise words of Sir Thomas Overbury, the justice who took the preliminary examinations. The hat and comb being hacked and cut, and the band bloody, but nothing more could there be found. Therefore the hat and comb were not on Harrison's head when they were hacked and cut. Otherwise they must have been blood-stained. The band worn about the throat was bloody, but there was no trace of blood on the road. This passage contains the key to the puzzle. On hearing of the discovery of these objects, all the people rushed to hunt for Harrison's corpse, which they did not find. An old man like Harrison was not likely to stay at Charingworth very late, but it seems that whatever occurred on the highway happened after twilight. Suspicion fell upon John Perry, who was hailed before the narrator, Sir Thomas Overbury, 
J.P. Perry said that after starting for Charingworth to seek his master on the previous evening about 8.45 p.m., he met by the way William Reed of Campton and explained to him that as he was timid in the dark, he would go back and take Edward Harrison's horse in return. Perry did as he had said, and Reed left him at Mr. Harrison's court gate. Perry dallied there till one Pierce came past, and with Pierce, he did not say why, he went a bow shot into the fields, and so back once more to Harrison's gate. He now lay for an hour in a henhouse. He rose at midnight, and again the moon having now risen and dispelled his fears. He started for Charingworth. He lost his way in a mist, slept by the roadside, proceeded in the dawn to Charingworth, and found that Harrison had been there on the previous day. Then he came back and met Edward Harrison on his way to seek his father at Charingworth. Perry's story is like a tale told by an idiot, but Reed, Pierce, and two men at Charingworth corroborated as far as their knowledge went. Certainly, Perry had been in company with Reed and Pierce, say between nine and ten on the previous night. Now, if evil had befallen Harrison, it must have been before ten at night. He would not stay so late, if sober, at Charingworth. Was he usually sober? The cool way in which his wife and son took his absence suggests that he was a late-wandering old boy. They may have expected Perry to find him in his cups and tuck him up comfortably at Charingworth or at Ebrington. Till August 24, Perry was detained in prison, or, odd to say, at the inn. He told various tales. A tinker or a servant had murdered his master and hidden him in a beanrick, where, on search being made, non est inventus. Harrison and the rents he had collected were vanished in the azure. Perry now declared that he would tell all to Overbury and to no other man. To him, Perry averred that his mother and brother, Joan and Richard Perry, had murdered Harrison. It was his brother who, by John Perry's advice and connivance, had robbed the house in the previous year, while John had a halibi being at church. The brother said John buried the money in the garden. It was sought for, but was not found. His story of the two men in white, who had previously attacked him in the garden, was a lie, he said. I may add that it was not the lie of a sane man. Perry was conspicuously crazy. He went on with his fables. His mother and brother, he declared, had often asked him to tell them when his master went to collect rents. He had done so after Harrison started for Charingworth on the morning of August 16. John Perry next gave an account of his expedition with his brother in the evening of the fatal day, an account which was incompatible with his previous tale of his doings and with the authentic evidence of Reed and Pierce. Their honest version destroyed Perry's new falsehood. He declared that Richard Perry and he had dogged Harrison as he came home at night into Lady Campton's grounds. Harrison had used a key to the private gate. Richard followed him into the grounds. John Perry, after a brief stroll, joined him there and found his mother. How did she come thither? And Richard, standing over the prostrate Harrison, whom Richard incontinently strangled. They seized Harrison's money and meant to put his body in the great sink by Wallington's mill. John Perry left them and knew not whether the body was actually thrown into the sink. In fact, 
non-estinbentus, in the sink, any more than in the bean-rick. John next introduced his meeting with Pierce, but quite forgot that he had also met Reed, and did not account for that part of his first story, which Reed and Pierce had both corroborated. The hat, comb, and band John said that he himself had carried away from Harrison's body, had cut them with his knife and thrown them into the highway. Whence the blood on the band came, he neglected to say. On the strength of this impossible farrago of insane falsehoods, Joan and Richard Perry were arrested and brought before Overbury. Not only the sink, but the Campton fish pools and the ruinous parts of the house were vainly searched in quest of Harrison's body. On August 25, the three Perrys were examined by Overbury, and Richard and the mother denied all that John laid to their charge. John persisted in his story, and Richard admitted that he and John had spoken together on the morning of the day when Harrison vanished, but nothing passed between them to that purpose. As the three were being brought back from Overbury's house to Campton, an unfortunate thing happened. John was going foremost when Richard, a good way behind, dropped a ball of inkle from his pocket. One of his guards picked it up, and Richard said that it was only his wife's hair lace. At one end, however, was a slipknot. The finder took it to John, who, being a good way in front, had not seen his brother drop it. On being shown the string, John shook his head and said, to his sorrow he knew it, for that was the string his brother strangled his master with. To this circumstance John swore at the ensuing trial. The Assises were held in September, and the Perrys were indicted both for the robbery in 1659 and the murder in 1660. They pleaded guilty to the first charge, as someone in court whispered to them to do, for the crime was covered by the act of pardon and oblivion passed by Charles II at his happy restoration. If they were innocent of the robbery, as probably they were, they acted foolishly in pleading guilty. We hear of no evidence against them for the robbery except John's confession, which was evidence perhaps against John, but was none against them. They thus damaged their case, for if they were really guilty of the robbery from Harrison's house, they were the most likely people in the neighborhood to have robbed him again and murdered him. Very probably they tied the rope round their own necks by taking advantage of the good king's indemnity. They later withdrew their confession and probably were innocent of the theft in 1659. Transcriber's note, original has 1559. On the charge of murder, they were not tried in September. Sir Christopher Turner would not proceed because the body of Harrison was not found. There was no corpus delicti, no evidence that Harrison was really dead. Meanwhile, John Perry, as if to demonstrate his lunacy, declared that his mother and brother had tried to poison him in prison. At the spring assizes in 1661, Sir B. Hyde, less legal than Sir Christopher Turner, did try the Perrys on the charge of murder. How he could do this does not appear, for the account of the trial is not in the record house, and I am unable at present to trace it. In the Arminian magazine, John Wesley publishes a story of a man who was hanged for murdering another man, whom he afterwards met in one of the Spanish colonies of South America. I shall not here interrupt the tale of the Perrys by explaining how a hanged man met a murdered man, 
but the anecdote proves that to inflict capital punishment for murder without proof that the murder has been committed is not only an illegal but an injudicious proceeding. Probably it was assumed that Harrison, if alive, would have given signs of life in the course of nine or ten months. At the trial in spring, all three Perrys pleaded not guilty, John's confession being proved against him. He told them he was then mad and knew not what he had said. There must have been some evidence against Richard. He declared that his brother had accused others besides him. Being asked to prove this, he answered that most of those that had given evidence against him knew it, but named none. So evidence had been given, perhaps to the effect that Richard had been flush of money, but by whom and to what effect we do not know. The Perrys were probably not of the best repute. The mother, Joan, was supposed to be a witch. This charge was seldom brought against popular, well-living people. How intense was the fear of witches at that date we know from the stories and accounts of trials in Glanville's Satechismus Triumphatus. The neighbors probably held that Joan Perry would, as a witch, be none the war of a hangin'. She was put to death first under the belief that any hypnotic or other unholy influence of hers which prevented her sons from confessing would be destroyed by her death. We are not aware the post-hypnotic suggestion is removed by the death of the suggester. The experiment has not been tried. The experiment failed in Joan's case. Poor Richard, who was hanged next, could not induce the dogged and surly John to clear his character by a dying declaration. Such declarations were then held irrefragable evidence, at least in Scotland, except when, as in the case of George Sprott hanged for the Gowrie conspiracy, it did not suit the Presbyterians to believe the dying man. When John was being turned off, he said that he knew nothing of his master's death nor what was become of him, but they might hereafter possibly hear. Did John know something? It would not surprise me if he had an inkling of the real state of the case. Two. They did hear, but what they heard, and what I have now to tell, was perfectly incredible. When some years, too, apparently, had passed, Will Harrison, gentlemen like the three silly ewes in the folk rhyme, came Herplingheim. Where had the old man been? He explained in a letter to Sir Thomas Overbury, but his tale is as hard to believe as that of John Perry. He states that he left his house in the afternoon, not the morning, of Thursday, August 16, 1660. He went to Charingworth to collect rents, but Lady Campton's tenants were all out harvesting. August seems an odd month for rent collecting when one thinks of it. They came home late, which delayed Harrison till the close of the evening. He only received twenty-three pounds, which John Perry said at his first examination in 1660 had been paid by one Edward Pleister, and Pleister corroborated. Harrison then walked homeward in the dusk, probably, and, near Ebrington, where the road was narrow and bordered by winds, there he met one horseman who said, Art thou there? Afraid of being ridden over, Harrison struck the horse on the nose, and the rider with a sword struck at him and stabbed him in the side. It was at this point of the road where the winds grew, 
that the cut hat and bloody band were found, but a thrust in the side would not make a neckband bloody. Two other horsemen here came up, one of them wounded Harrison in the thigh. They did not now take his twenty-three pounds, but placed him behind one of them on the horseback, handcuffed him, and threw a great cloak over him. Now is it likely that highwaymen would carry handcuffs which closed, says Harrison, with a spring and a snap? The story is pure fiction, and bad at that. Suppose that kidnapping, not robbery, was the motive which would account for the handcuffs. What had any mortal to gain by kidnapping? For the purpose of selling him into slavery, a gentleman of seventy years of age? In the night they took Harrison's money, and tumbled me down a stone pit. In an hour they dragged him out again, and he naturally asked what they wanted with him, as they had his money already. One of these miscreants wounded Harrison again and stuffed his pockets full of a great quantity of money. If they had a great quantity of money, what did they want with twenty-three pounds? We hear of no other robberies in the neighborhood, of which misdeeds the money might have been the profits. And why must Harrison carry the money? It has been suggested that, to win popular favor, they represented themselves as smugglers, and Harrison, with the money, as their gallant purser, wounded in some heroic adventure. They next rode till late on August 17, and then put Harrison down, bleeding and sorely bruised with the carriage of the money, at a lonely house. Here they gave their victim broth and brandy. On Saturday they rode all day to a house where they slept, and on Sunday they brought Harrison to deal, and laid him down on the ground. This was about three in the afternoon. Had they wanted to make for the sea, they would naturally have gone to the west coast. While one fellow watched Harrison, two met a man, and I heard them mention seven pounds. The man to whom seven pounds were mentioned, Renshaw was his name, as Harrison afterwards heard, where said that he thought Harrison would die before he could be put on board a ship. Que diable allait il faire dans cette galerie? Harrison was, however, put on board a casual vessel and remained in the ship for six weeks. Where was the land to which the ship would go? Far, far ahead is all the sailors know. Harrison does not say into what foam of perilous seas and fairy lands forlorn the ship went wandering for six mortal weeks. Like Lord Bateman, he sailed east and he sailed west until he came to famed Turkey, where he was taken and put in prison till of his life he was weary. Then the master of the ship came and told me, and the rest who were in the same condition, that he discovered three Turkish ships, the rest who were in the same condition. We are to understand that a whole cargo of Harrison's was kidnapped and consigned captive to a vessel launched on ocean, on the off chance that the captain might meet three Turkish rovers who would snap them up. At this rate of carrying on, there must have been disappearances as strange as Harrison's from dozens of English parishes in August 1660. Had a crew of kidnappers been taking captives for purposes of private fiscal policy, they would have shipped them to the Virginian plantations, where Turkish galleys did not venture, and they would not have kidnapped men of seventy. Moreover, kidnappers would not damage their captives by stabbing them in the side and thigh when no resistance was made, as was done to Harrison. The rest who were in the same condition were 
dumped down near Smyrna, where the valuable Harrison was sold to a grave physician. This turkey was eighty-seven years of age and preferred Crowland in Lincolnshire before all other places in England. No inquiries are known to have been made about a Turkish medical man who once practiced at Crowland in Lincolnshire, though, if he ever did, he was likely to be remembered in the district. This turkey employed Harrison in the still room and as a hand in the cotton fields, where he once knocked his slave down with his fist pretty well for a Turk of 87. He also gave Harrison, whom he usually employed in the chemical department of his business, a silver bowl, double gilt, to drink in, and named him Bowl, his way of pronouncing Bowl. No doubt he had acquired a Lincolnshire accent. This Turk fell ill on a Thursday and died on a Saturday, when Harrison tramped to the nearest port, Bowl and all. Two men in a Hamburg ship refused to give him a passage, but a third for the price of his silver gilt bowl. Let him come aboard. Harrison was landed without even his bowl at Lisbon, where he instantly met a man from Wisbeck in Lincolnshire. This good Samaritan gave Harrison wine, strong waters, eight stivers, and his passage to Dover, whence he came back to Campton, much to the amazement of mankind. We do not hear the names of the ship and skipper that brought Harrison from Lisbon to Dover. Renshaw, the man to whom seven pounds were mentioned, is the only person named in this delirious tissue of nonsense. The editor of our pamphlet says, Many question the truth of this account Mr. Harrison gives of himself and his transportation, believing he was never out of England. I do not wonder at their skepticism. Harrison had all his days been a man of sober life and conversation, we are told, and the odd thing is that he left behind him a considerable sum of his lady's money in his house. He did not see any of the Perrys on the night of his disappearance. The editor admits that Harrison, as an article of merchandise, was not worth his freight to deal, still less to Smyrna. His son, in his absence, became Lady Campton's steward and behaved but ill in that situation. Some suspected that this son arranged the kidnapping of Harrison, but if so, why did he secure the hanging of John Perry in chains on Broadway Hill, where we might daily see him? That might be a blind, but young Harrison could not expect John Perry to assist him by accusing himself and his brother and mother, which was the most unlooked-for event in the world. Nor could he know that his father would come home from Charingworth on August 16, 1660, in the dark, and so arranged for three horsemen in possession of a heavy weight of specie to stab and carry off the aged sire. Young Harrison had not a great fardo of money to give them, and if they were already so rich, what had they to gain by taking Harrison to deal and putting him with others in the same condition on board a casual ship? They could have left him in the stone pit. He knew not who they were, and the longer they rode by daylight with a hatless, handcuffed, and sorely wounded prisoner, his pockets overburdened with gold, the more risk of detection they ran. A company of three men ride in broad daylight through England from Gloucestershire to Deal. Behind one of them sits a wounded and hatless and handcuffed captive, his pockets bulging with money. Nobody suspects anything. No one calls the attention of a magistrate to this extraordinary demarche. It is too absurd. The story told by Harrison is conspicuously and childishly false. 
At every baiting place, at every inn, these weird riders must have been challenged. If Harrison told truth, he must have named the ship and skipper that brought him to Dover. Dismissing Harrison's myth, we ask, what could account for his disappearance? He certainly walked on the evening of August 16 to within about a mile of his house. He would not have done that had he been bent on a senile amour involving his absence from home. And had that scheme of pleasure been in his mind, he would have provided himself with money. Again, a fit of ambulatory somnambulism and the emergence of a split or secondary personality with forgetfulness of his real name and address is not likely to have seized on him in that very moment and place. If it did, as there were no railways, he could not rush off in a crowd and pass unnoticed through the country. Once more, the theory of ambulatory somnambulism does not account for his hacked hat and bloody band found near the winds on the road behind Ebrington. Nor does his own story account for them. He was stabbed in the side and thigh, he says. This would not cut his hat or ensanguine his band. On the other hand, he would leave pools and tracks of blood on the road, the highway. But nothing more could there be found, no pools or traces of blood on the road. It follows that the hacked hat and bloody band were a designed false trail, not left there by John Perry as he falsely swore, but by some other persons. The inference is that for some reason Harrison's presence at Campton was inconvenient to somebody. He had lived through most troubled times and had come into a changed state of affairs with new masters. He knew some secret of the troubled times. He was a witness better out of the way. He may conceivably have held a secret that bore on the case of one of the regicides, or that affected private interests, for he was the trusted servant of a great family. He was therefore spirited away, a trail certainly false, the cut hat and bloody band was laid. By an amazing coincidence, his servant, John Perry, went more or less mad he was not sane on the evening of Thursday, August 16, and accused himself, his brother, and mother. Harrison was probably never far from Campton during the two or three years of his disappearance. It was obviously made worth his while to tell his absurd story on his return, and to accept the situation. No other hypothesis colligates the facts. What Harrison knew why his absence was essential we cannot hope to discover, but he never was a captive in famed Turkey. Mr. Paget writes, It is impossible to assign a sufficient motive for kidnapping the old man. Much profit was not likely to arise from the sale of the old man as a slave. Obviously there was no profit, especially as the old man was delivered in a wounded and imperfect condition. But a motive for keeping Harrison out of the way is only hard to seek because we do not know the private history of his neighbors. Roundheads among them may have had excellent reasons under the Restoration for sequestering Harrison till the revenges of the Restoration were accomplished. On this view, the mystery almost ceases to be mysterious, for such mad self-accusations as that of John Perry are not uncommon. Footnote 7 Not only have I failed to trace the records of the Assize at which the Perrys were tried, but the newspapers of 1660 seem to contain no account of the trial, as they do in the case of the drummer of Tedworth, 1663. And Miss E. M. Thompson, who kindly undertook the search, has not even found a ballad or broadside on the Campton Wonder in the British Museum. The pamphlet of 1676 has frequently been republished in whole or in part, as in State Trials, 
Volume 14, an appendix to the case of Captain Green, which, see Infra, page 193, at sec. End of chapter 3. Recording by Sissy Neck.